the inmost light. Well, I guess I should do probably some sort of introduction. So, hi everybody, welcome to the Weird Tales Podcast, thank you for listening. Uh, this is your introduction for this week, I don't really have anything else to say. So, thank you for listening, please feel free to leave a rating and review, and let's get to the story. The Inmost Delight by Arthur Mockin. One. One evening in autumn, when the deformities of London were veiled in faint blue mist and its vistas and far-reaching streets seemed splendid, Mr. Charles Salisbury was slowly pacing down Rupert Street, drawing nearer to his favorite restaurant by slow degrees. His eyes were downcast in study of the pavement, and thus it was that as he passed in at the narrow door, a man who had come up from the lower end of the street jostled against him. Oh, I beg your pardon. I wasn't looking where I was going. Why, it's Dyson. Yes, quite so. How are you, Salisbury? Quite well. But where have you been, Dyson? I don't think I can have seen you for the last five years. No, I dare say not. You remember I was getting rather hard up when you came to my place at Charlotte Street. Perfectly. I think I remember your telling me that you owed five weeks' rent and that you had parted with your watch for a comparatively small sum. My dear Salisbury, your memory is admirable. Yes, I was hard up, but the curious thing is that soon after you saw me, I became harder up. My financial state was described by a friend as stone broke. I don't approve of slang, mind you, but such was my condition. But suppose we go in. There might be other people who would like to dine. It's a human weakness, Salisbury. Oh, certainly. Come along. I was wondering as I walked down whether the corner table were taken. It has a velvet back, you know. I know the spot. It's vacant. Yes, as I was saying, I became even harder up. Well, what did you do then? asked Salisbury, disposing of his hat and settling down in the corner of the seat with a glance of fond anticipation at the menu. What did I do? Why, I sat down and reflected. I had a good classical education and a positive distaste for business of any kind. That was the capital with which I faced the world. Do you know I have heard people describe olives as nasty? What lamentable philistinism! I have often thought, Salisbury, that I could write genuine poetry under the influence of olives and red wine. Let us have Chianti. It may not be very good, but the flasks are simply charming. It is pretty good here. We might as well have a big flask. Very good. I reflected then on my want of prospects, and I determined to embark in literature. Really? That was strange. You seem in pretty comfortable circumstances, though. Though? What a satire upon a noble profession. I was afraid, Salisbury, you haven't a proper idea of the dignity of an artist. You see me sitting at my desk, or at least you can see me if you care to call, with pen and ink and simple nothingness before me, and if you come in again in a few hours you will, in all probability, find a creation. Yes, quite so. I had an idea that literature was not remunerative. You are mistaken. Its rewards are great. I may mention, by the way, that shortly after you saw me I succeeded to a small income. An uncle died and proved unexpectedly generous. Ah, I see. That must have been convenient. It was pleasant. Undeniably pleasant. I have always considered it in the light of an endowment of my researches. I told you I was a man of letters. It would, perhaps, be more correct to describe myself as a man of science. Dear me, Dyson, you have really changed very much in the last few years. I had a notion, don't you know, that you were a sort of idler about town, the kind of man one might meet on the north side of Piccadilly every day from May to July. Exactly. I was even then forming myself, though all unconsciously. You know my poor father could not afford to send me to university. I used to grumble in my ignorance at not having completed my education. That was the folly of youth, Salisbury. My university was Piccadilly. There I began to study the great science which still occupies me. What science do you mean? The science of the great city, the physiology of London, literally and metaphysically the greatest subject that the mind of man can conceive. What an admirable salmi this is, undoubtedly the final end of the pheasant. 
Yet I feel sometimes positively overwhelmed with the thought of the vastness and complexity of London. Paris a man may get to understand thoroughly with a reasonable amount of study, but London is always a mystery. In Paris, you may say, here live the actresses, here the bohemians, and the rates, but it is different in London. You may point out a street correctly enough as the abode of washerwomen, but in that second floor a man may be studying Chaldee roots, and in the garret over the way a forgotten artist is dying by inches. I see you are, Dyson, unchanged and unchangeable, said Salisbury, slowly sipping his Chianti. I think you are misled by a too fervid imagination. The mystery of London exists only in your fancy. It seems to me a dull place enough. We seldom hear of a really artistic crime in London, whereas I believe Paris abounds in that sort of thing. Give me some more wine. Thanks. You are mistaken, my dear fellow. You are really mistaken. London has nothing to be ashamed of in the way of crime. Where we fail is for want of homers, not Agamemnon's. Current qua vate sacro, you know. I recall the quotation, but I don't think I quite follow you. Well, in plain language, we have no good writers in London who make a speciality of that kind of thing. Our common reporter is a dull dog. Every story that he has to tell is spoilt in the telling. His idea of horror and of what excites horror is so lamentably deficient. Nothing will content the fellow but blood, vulgar red blood, and when he can get it, he lays it home thick and considers that he has produced a telling article. It's a poor notion, and by some curious fatality it is the most commonplace and brutal murders which always attract the most attention and get written up the most. For instance, I dare say that you never heard of the Halsden case. No, no, I don't remember anything about it. Of course not, and yet the story is a curious one. I will tell it to you over our coffee. Harlesden, you know, or I expect you don't know, is on the outquarters of London, something curiously different from your fine old crested suburb like Norwood or Hampstead, different as each of these is from the other. Hampstead, I mean, is where you look for the head of your great china house with his three acres of land and pine houses, though of late there is the artistic substratum, while Norwood is the home of the prosperous middle-class family who took the house because it was near the palace, and sickened of the palace six months afterwards, but Harlesden is a place of no character. It's too new to have any character as yet. There are the rows of red houses and the rows of white houses and the bright green Venetians and the blistering doorways and the little backyards they call gardens and a few feeble shops and then, just as you think you're going to grasp the physiognomy of the settlement, it all melts away. Well, how the dickens is that? The houses don't tumble down before one's eyes, I suppose. Well, no, not exactly that, but Halsden as an entity disappears. Your street turns into a quiet lane, and your staring houses into elm trees, and the back gardens into green meadows. You pass instantly from town to country. There is no transition, as in a small country town, no soft gradations of wider lawns and orchards, with houses gradually becoming less dense, but a dead stop. I believe the people who live here mostly go into the city. I have seen once or twice a laden bus bound thitherwards, but however that may be, I can't conceive a greater loneliness in a desert at midnight than there is at midday. It is like a city of the dead. The streets are glaring and desolate, and as you pass it suddenly strikes you that this too is part of London. Well, a year or two ago there was a doctor living there. He had set up his brass plate and his red lamp at the very end of one of those shining streets, and from the back of the house the field stretched away to the north. I don't know what his reason was in settling down in such an out-of-the-way place, Perhaps Dr. Black, as we will call him, was a far-seeing man and looked ahead. His relations, so it appeared afterwards, had lost sight of him for many years and didn't even know he was a doctor, much less where he lived. However, there he was settled in Harlesden with some fragments of a practice and an uncommonly pretty wife. People used to see them walking out together in the summer evening soon after they came to Harlesden, and so far as could be observed, they seemed a very affectionate couple. These walks went on through the autumn and then ceased, but... 
Of course, as the days grew dark and the weather cold, the lanes near Halsden might be expected to lose many of their attractions. All through the winter, nobody saw anything of Mrs. Black. The doctor used to reply to his patient's inquiries that she was a little out of sorts, would be better no doubt in the spring. But the spring came, and the summer, and no Mrs. Black appeared. And at last people began to rumour and talk amongst themselves, and all sorts of queer things were said at high teas, which you may possibly have heard are the only form of entertainment known in such suburbs. Dr. Black began to surprise some very odd looks cast in his direction, and the practice, such as it was, fell off before his eyes. In short, when the neighbours whispered about the matter, they whispered that Mrs. Black was dead, and that the doctor had made away with her. But this wasn't the case. Mrs. Black was seen alive in June. It was a Sunday afternoon, one of those few exquisite days that an English climate offers, and half London had strayed out into the fields, north, south, east, and west, to smell the scent of the white may, and to see if the wild roses were yet in blossom in the hedges. I had gone out myself early in the morning, and had had a long ramble, and somehow or other, as I was steering homeward, I found myself in this very Harlesden we have been talking about. To be exact, I had a glass of beer in the General Gordon, the most flourishing house in the neighborhood, and as I was wandering rather aimlessly about, I saw an uncommonly tempting gap in a hedgerow, and resolved to explore the meadow beyond. Soft grass is very grateful to the feet after the infernal grit strewn on suburban sidewalks, and after walking about for some time, I thought I should like to sit down on a bank and have a smoke. While I was getting out my pouch, I looked up in the direction of the houses, and as I looked, I felt my breath caught back, and my teeth began to chatter, and the stick I had in one hand snapped in two with the grip I gave it. It was as if I had an electric current down my spine, and yet for some moment of time which seemed long, but which must have been very short, I caught myself wondering what on earth was the matter. Then I knew what had made my very heart shudder, and my bones grind together in an agony. As I glanced up, I had looked straight towards the last house in the row before me, and in an upper window of that house I had seen, for some short fraction of a second, a face. It was the face of a woman, and yet it was not human. You and I, Salisbury, have heard in our time, as we sat in our seats in church in sober English fashion, of a lust that cannot be satiated, and of a fire that is unquenchable. But few of us have any notion what these words mean. I hope you never may, for as I saw that face at the window, with the blue sky above me and the warm air playing in gusts about me, I knew I had looked into another world, looked through the window of a commonplace, brand-new house, and seen hell open before me. When the first shock was over, I thought once or twice that I would have fainted. My face streamed with a cold sweat, and my breath came and went in sobs as if I had been half-drowned. I managed to get up at last and walked round to the street, and there I saw the name, Dr. Black, on the post by the front gate. As fate, or my luck would have it, the door opened and a man came down the steps as I passed by. I had no doubt it was the doctor himself. He was of a type rather common in London, long and thin, with a pasty face and a dull black moustache. He gave me a look as we passed each other on the pavement, and, though it was merely the casual glance which one foot passenger bestows on another, I felt convinced in my mind that here was an ugly customer to deal with. As you may imagine, I went my way a good deal puzzled and horrified too by what I had seen, for I had paid another visit to the General Gordon and had got together a good deal of the common gossip of the place about the blacks. I didn't mention the fact that I had seen a woman's face in the window, but I had heard that Mrs. Black had been much admired for her beautiful golden hair, and round what had struck me with such a nameless terror, there was a mist of flowing yellow hair, as it were an aureola of glory around the visage of a satyr. The whole thing bothered me in an indescribable manner, and when I got home I tried my best to think of the impression I had received as an illusion, but it was no use. I knew very well I had seen what I have tried to describe to you, and I was morally certain that I had seen Mrs. Black. And then there was the gossip of the place. 
the suspicion of foul play, which I knew to be false, and my own conviction that there was some deadly mischief or other going on in that bright red house at the corner of Devon Road, how to construct a theory of a reasonable kind out of these two elements. In short, I found myself in a world of mystery. I puzzled my head over it and filled up my leisure moments by gathering together odd threads of speculation, but I never moved a step towards any real solution, and as the summer days went on the matter seemed to grow misty and indistinct, shadowing some vague terror like a nightmare of last month. I suppose it would before long have faded into the background of my brain. I should not have forgotten it, for such a thing could never be forgotten. But one morning, as I was looking over the paper, my eye was caught by a heading over some two dozen lines of small type. The words I had seen were simply, The Harsden Case, and I knew what I was going to read. Mrs. Black was dead. Black had called in another medical man to certify as to cause of death, and something or other had roused the doctor's suspicions, and there had been an inquest and post-mortem. And the result? That, I will confess, did astonish me considerably. It was the triumph of the unexpected. The two doctors who made the autopsy were obliged to confess that they could not discover the faintest trace of any kind of foul play. Their most exquisite tests and reagents failed to detect the presence of poison in the most infinitesimal quantity. Death, they found, had been caused by a somewhat obscure and scientifically interesting form of brain disease. The tissue of the brain and the molecules of the grey matter had undergone a most extraordinary series of changes, and the younger of the two doctors, who has some reputation, I believe, as a specialist in brain trouble, made some remarks in giving his evidence which struck me deeply at the time, though I did not then grasp their full significance. He said, At the commencement of the examination, I was astonished to find appearances of a character entirely new to me, notwithstanding my somewhat large experience. I need not specify these appearances at present. It will be sufficient for me to state that, as I proceeded in my task, I could scarcely believe that the brain before me was that of a human being at all. There was some surprise at this statement, as you may imagine, and the coroner asked the doctor if he meant to say that the brain resembled that of an animal. No, he replied. I should not put it that way. Some of the appearances, I noticed, seemed to point in that direction, but others, and these were the more surprising, indicated a nervous organization of a wholly different character from that either of man or the lower animals. It was a curious thing to say, but of course the jury brought in a verdict of death from natural causes, and so far as the public was concerned, the case came to an end. But after I had read what the doctor said, I made up my mind that I should like to know a good deal more, and I set to work on what seemed likely to prove an interesting investigation. I had really a good deal of trouble, but I was successful in a measure. Though why? My dear fellow, I had no notion at the time. Are you aware that we have been here nearly four hours? The waiters are staring at us. Let's have the bill and be gone. The two men went out in silence and stood a moment in the cool air, watching the hurrying traffic of Coventry Street pass before them, to the accompaniment of the ringing bells of hansoms and the cries of the newsboys. The deep, far murmur of London surging up ever and again from beneath these louder noises. "'It is a strange case, isn't it?' said Dyson at length. "'What do you think of it?' "'Oh, my dear fellow, I haven't heard the end, so I will reserve my opinion. "'When will you give me the sequel?' "'Come to my room some evening, say next Thursday. "'Here's the address. "'Good night. I want to get down to the Strand.' "'Dyson hailed a passing hansom, and Salisbury turned northward to walk home to his lodgings. Two. Mr. Salisbury, as may have been gathered from the few remarks "'which he had found it possible to introduce in the course of the evening,' was a young gentleman of a peculiarly solid form of intellect, coy and retiring before the mysterious and the uncommon, with a constitutional dislike of paradox. During the restaurant dinner he had been forced to listen in almost absolute silence to a strange tissue of improbabilities strung together with the ingenuity of a born meddler in plots and mysteries, 
and it was with a feeling of weariness that he crossed Shaftesbury Avenue and dived into the recesses of Soho, for his lodgings were in a modest neighborhood to the north of Oxford Street. As he walked, he speculated on the probable fate of Dyson, relying on literature, unbefriended by a thoughtful relative, and could not help concluding that so much subtlety united to a too vivid imagination would, in all likelihood, have been rewarded with a pair of sandwich boards or a super's banner. Absorbed in this train of thought, and admiring the perverse dexterity which could transmute the face of a sickly woman in a case of brain disease into the crude elements of romance, Salisbury strayed on through the dimly lighted streets, not noticing the gusty wind which drove sharply round corners, and whirled the stray rubbish of the pavement into the air in eddies, while black clouds gathered over the sickly yellow moon. Even a stray drop or two of rain blown into his face did not rouse him from his meditations, and it was only when, with a sudden rush, the storm tore down upon the street that he began to consider the expediency of finding some shelter. The rain, driven by the wind, pelted down with the violence of a thunderstorm, dashing up from the stones and hissing through the air, and soon a perfect torrent of water coursed along the kennels and accumulated in pools over the choked-up drains. The few stray passengers who had been loafing rather than walking about the street had scuttered away like frightened rabbits to some invisible places of refuge, and though Salisbury whistled loud and longed for a hansom, no hansom appeared. He looked about him as if to discover how far he might be from the haven of Oxford Street, but strolling carelessly along, he had turned out of his way and found himself in an unknown region, and one to all appearance devoid even of a public house where shelter could be bought for the modest sum of two pence. The street lamps were few and at long intervals, and burned behind grimy glasses with the sickly light of oil, and by this wavering glimmer Salisbury could make out the shadowy and vast old houses of which the street was composed. As he passed along, hurrying and shrinking from the full sweep of the rain, he noticed the innumerable bell-handles with names that seemed about to vanish of old age graven on brass plates beneath them, and here and there a richly carved penthouse overhung the door, blackening with the grime of fifty years. The storm seemed to grow more and more furious. He was wet through, and a new hat had become a ruin, and still Oxford Street seemed as far off as ever. It was with deep relief that the dripping man caught sight of a dark archway which seemed to promise shelter from the rain, if not from the wind. Salisbury took up his position in the driest corner and looked about him. He was standing in a kind of passage contrived under part of a house, and behind him stretched a narrow footway leading between blank walls to regions unknown. He had stood there for some time, vainly endeavoring to rid himself of some of his superfluous moisture, and listening for the passing wheel of a hansom, when his attention was aroused by a loud noise coming from the direction of the passage behind, and growing louder as it drew nearer. In a couple of minutes he could make out the shrill, raucous voice of a woman, threatening and renouncing and making the very stones echo with her accents, while now and then a man grumbled and expostulated. Though to all appearance devoid of romance, Salisbury had some relish for street rows, and was, indeed, somewhat of an amateur in the more amusing phases of drunkenness. He therefore composed himself to listen and observe, with something of the air of a subscriber to grand opera. To his annoyance, however, the tempest seemed suddenly to be composed, and he could hear nothing but the impatient steps of the woman and the slow lurch of the man as they came toward him. Keeping back in the shadows of the wall, he could see the two drawing nearer. The man was evidently drunk and had much ado to avoid frequent collision with the wall as he tacked across from one side to the other, like some bark beating up against a wind. The woman was looking straight in front of her with tears streaming from her eyes, but suddenly as they went by, the flame blazed up again and she burst forth into a torrent of abuse, facing round upon her companion. "'You low rascal! You mean contemptible cur!' She went on after an incoherent storm of curses. You think I'm to work and slave for you always, I suppose, while you're after that Green Street girl and drinking every penny you've got. But you're mistaken, Sam. Indeed, I'll bear it no longer. 
damn you, you dirty thief. I've done with you and your master too, so you can go your own errands, and I only hope they'll get you into trouble. The woman tore at the bosom of her dress, and taking something out that looked like paper, crumpled it up and flung it away. It fell at Salisbury's feet. She ran out and disappeared in the darkness while the man lurched slowly into the street, grumbling indistinctly to himself in a perplexed tone of voice. Salisbury looked out after him and saw him maundering along the pavement, halting now and then and swaying indecisively, and then starting off at some fresh tangent. The sky had cleared, and white fleecy clouds were fleeting across the moon high in the heaven. The light came and went by turns as the clouds passed by, and turning round as the clear white rays showed into the passage, Salisbury saw the little ball of crumpled paper which the woman had cast down. Oddly curious to know what it might contain, he picked it up and put it in his pocket and set out afresh on his journey. All right, and that is part one of The Inmost Light by Arthur Machen. Uh, nice setup there, and we will find out what it all means next week. I hope you haven't been enjoying the show. I hope you haven't been enjoying this story. If you have anything that you wish to opine to me, you can find me on Twitter at WeirdTalesPod. You can email me, theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. You can leave me a rating and a review on iTunes. I always look over those. I always answer them, uh, good or bad, uh, on my Twitter feed. And uh, I've not gotten any bad reviews. I've gotten some with constructive criticism, um, which I appreciate very much. Feel free to leave anything you want. R- rate, rate it whatever you feel it's worth, and then le- just leave an honest review. That's all I ask. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great week. Da-da-da-da-da-da! Here's the bloops! I may mention, by the way, that shortly after you saw me, I secured... <sighs> Is this going to be all dialogue? Is this story all dialogue? Do I not remember this being all dialogue? Oh my god, it's all dialogue. No, it's not all dialogue. Okay, it's not all dialogue. It's, it, this first chapter is a good bit of dialogue, but current qua vate sacro. There's Latin coming up, everybody. Brace yourself. Literally and metaphysically, the greatest subject that the mind of man can conceive. What an admirable salmi this is. Undoubtedly the final end of the pheasant. Yet I feel sometimes positively overwhelmed with the thought of the vastness and complexity. That was a comment on the food. Fah! It was a mistake to choose this story. Nothing will content the fellow but blood. Vulgar red blood, and where he can get it, it lays on thin... That's not the sentence. This is a bugger, this one is. That he began to consider the expediency... Expediency? I even was, was... There were no commas in that sentence, and I was doing it really well. Putting commas where commas should go. And one to all appearance devoid even of a public house. I have no idea how I'm supposed to read this sentence. And one to all appearance devoid. And one to all appearance devoid even of a public house where shelter could be bought for the modest sum of two pence. All right. And one to all appearance. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. You can email me, theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com, and uh, you can, uh, that's it. There's nothing else. That's all, it's done. There's nothing else. Da-da-da-da-da-da, here's the bloops!